the Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. Uh, we're spending a lot of time on this very important book, and a very enlightening book. But we're coming to the end, uh, and it's been a grand finale so far. Uh, it, the book is called The Drama of Atheist Humanism by Father Henri de Lubac, S.J. And we are already on page 444. Uh, and it's only goes up to page uh, five, oh, 508, looks like. I can't open the page right, but anyway, around there. My page is stuck. No, 509. 509. So, Joseph, our fearless leader, please uh, take us away. Okay. Well, I do have one or two comments on the, the first page where, where we're restarting, which is this section six on page 444. Um, the uh, quote from Engels there, about 10 lines down. Nothing exists, comments Engels, except the uninterrupted process of becoming and of the transitory. Um, so that is obviously a, that's actually a very good, succinct definition of philosophical materialism. There is nothing but matter, which is uh, in the process of becoming or is the process of ceasing to be transitory. But then uh, what I like is the Lubach's comments about this, these sort of rhetorical questions. So if that's all there is, right, there's nothing uh, in existence except uninterrupted process of becoming transitory. He says a few lines further down, and the human race does not truly exist any more than the essence of man. What is from now on human solidarity? So, you know, why are we sacrificing ourselves for a future if we don't believe in the essence of man or in anything which we can call humanity, let alone human solidarity? And then what is the human future, he says then? If there's no such thing as the human uh, in any meaningful sense, then why care about uh, the future? And am I still right to say that if a liberation is to come, it is humanity that will be freed? Well, if there's no such thing as humanity in any meaningful sense, how can it be freed? So basically what Dulubak's doing there is taking Engels's uh, definition of the philosophical materialism, which is at the very root of his and Marx's philosophy, and saying, well, if that's the case, why are we worried about, uh, about the future of a humanity, which in th according to this theory, has no real meaning or relevance above uh, mere atoms. And this is, I believe, one of the services that people like Dulubach do for us, is that we might hear these phrases, like a phrase by Engels, and think there's something not quite right with it, but he shows us the implications. Take that as a premise, and here's where it leads. It's called the reductio ad absurdum. It takes the premises, but most of us don't have time to do that, or we forget that. And so a book like this does remind us and help us see, no, no matter how enticing, no matter how attractive this materialist goal is, it's self-inconsistent. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. Well, what it adds up to is nothing. <laughs> because as he shows on 445, um, you know, this comment about constant becoming, presumably it's becoming better and better, right? That That is the Marxist promise is that things are in a state of constantly becoming better. But as 
Delubac points out, he bursts the bubble and says, but we all know this cannot be on page 445. Where? In the middle. Okay. We all know this cannot be. We can believe in new heavens and new earth, but how can we believe in a totally humanized nature, humanized forever on our planet? Because a few times lines lower, he says, cosmic forces will overcome the fragile human. And I think that might be a typo. I think that's supposed to be planet, but cosmic forces will overcome. In other words, we know that the earth is not eternal. We know that the earth is not going to last forever. So how can the Marxist dream of becoming better and better simply on the plane of the planet, of the material existence of man, how is that possible? It's not possible. It's, it's not possible. It's going to yeah. come to an end. And he sets up this as a beginning point for what he talks about the despair later on, that when people finally figure this out, You mean we're not getting better and better forever and ever? He says this false optimism produces only despair. But he gets to that later, so I'll stop there. All right. Even if it were true that we're getting better and better, what good does that do to me? Because I disappear. I'm I'm going to sacrifice himself for future humanity. Well, Jesus did that for all humanity, but that's because he knew that he would rise again and we would with him. But, I mean... Is it selfish to think, well, I'm alive now. I'll take care of myself and enjoy myself. Am I going to am I going to give up things for some possible better future for somebody else? Yeah. If they're my children, I might do that, you know. Yeah, or if you, or if you believe if if you believe in humanity as uh, something made in the image of God and not mere merely matter, you might do that, but not if it's merely matter. But I think the other thing that that Delubac's doing on page 445 is to say that this is actually, you, you mentioned by the reduction ad absurdum, but I think he talks about ultimately this is a, uh, a contradiction in terms because he says that all of this, all of this disinterest, disinterestedness, this spirit of sacrifice for an imaginary future is based upon a belief in the humanity which their philosophy denies. So he says here, such a demand is on page 445, six lines down, such a demand, you know, for, for, for this golden future for humanity does not spring from sensitivity in other words from the mere senses right or from an egotistical nature from mere pride but from the spirit in other words that that on the one hand marxism is proclaiming the fact there's no such thing as spirit Mm. but in actual fact all of its premises are based upon an idea of humanity which has to be ultimately spiritual which is why from the part that um vivian uh quoted the middle of the page there um uh, humanity, let us continue to use this words, cannot be reconciled with nature, all right? That ultimately, whatever concept of humanity we have is not purely natural. It's not purely physical. There's something spiritual about it, which the which the Marxists have to come to terms with if they're not going to be speaking nonsense. And, and the beautiful thing about what Delubach does eventually with this section is that that dream, if you want to call it, of a perfected humanity that can only come from spirit, as you just said, Joseph, is a redeemable part of man. Man, Man's desire for his redemption, for his perfection, was, is part of being man. It's a part of being man that the Marxists deny exists, and they give a substitute for it, But that substitute eventually becomes disillusioning. And when that happens, 
Christian hope can enter in. And that's what he's setting up in this whole chapter, because that's where he ends, or this section, that's where he ends this section. So he doesn't, in other words, Delubach is not ridiculing the desire and the ideal that's in our hearts. What he's showing is that these materialist ideologies cannot deliver what they promise. And yes, also critical the because they, entitled, they actually, sorry, sorry, Father. The chapter is entitled The Search for a New Man, because that's what they're proposing. But it turns out, as we'll see, that the new man is already the old man who is old and new. The good steward brings out of his the treasure good things old and new. And I've often thought it's not that you've got some old things over here and some new things over there. What the good steward brings out is something which is both old and new at the same time. That's the beauty of Christianity. Yep. But before yep. he gets there, he shows us how monstrously cynical the leaders of these ideologies really are. Because they no more believe that they can deliver either. And what they have to do more and more and more is bear down in this tyrannical way to create this inhuman society. And so he talks about, you know, Auguste Comte again and his disciples, um, you know, that no rights of man at all are in view. This is in the middle of 446. Um, no satisfaction, no happiness can overcome in man the incoercible demand of truth and justice. So even the materialists, the leaders of these things, when they when they have an honest moment with themselves. It's not like they're going to admit, oh, you know what? Those of you, you useful idiots following our ideologies full of all these ideals, ha ha ha. We no longer have those ideals. We just want to make of society a machine that we control. Yeah, I think, I think, I think to be fair, perhaps to some of the revolutionaries in the past, I think the problem is that they, they can be idealistic in the theory. In other words, in, 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 the, in the desire for power, and in the practical steps, including revolution or the gain power, but then having gained power, then they're faced with the real politic the situation they're in. And, that, and that's when the tyranny and coercion begins, because the only way they can, can, first of all, keep power, but then to move it in some sort of socialist direction is by absolute tyranny. Well, I think Delubach here is hinting that, um, you know, uh, Comte and his disciples are... are um, already realizing the illusion and now just the sheer machinery of control becomes an end in itself. In other words, what starts out as maybe a means to an end, somehow this vision of this well-ordered society, even though it doesn't bring real happiness, they know that, but nevertheless, somehow this vision of this well-oiled machine of a human society becomes an end in itself. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to apologize for rejecting a brief, uh, irrelevant interlude here. When Joseph said power in his inimitable way, well, it's imitable, yes, but not by me. Uh, it calls to me that at our recent uh, venture together at Avonbury University, where we taught a course uh, after the first evening's course at nine o'clock. Uh, we had a party at uh, the pub for, with beer and pizza. And so, uh, and Joe said, oh, good. Well, now let's go to the potty. Go to the potty? Wait a minute. I'm going to go to the potty. Oh. Yeah. One, one of us is not speaking English. I'm not sure which one here. That's the problem. 
Well, I, I don't. I, next thing I have is four forty-eight. So I don't know if anybody better than that. Four forty-eight. Like well, go ahead. He does. He he does on four forty-seven. De Lubach. He points out. Look, the reason why these ideologies can't deliver, and he's putting communism and positivism and Nazis and He goes, look, they're all ultimately at the end of the day the same impetus to perfect man in a completely material way, which isn't going to work. And why isn't going to work? Because the profound cause of man's problem is spiritual. This is what he says on page 447 in the, in the middle. The profound cause is spiritual. And therefore, these materialist dreams and methods are not going to, are not going to work. Man, uh, in his foundation, the spirit of man has been ruined, DeLubach says. Ruined. Now, Fortunately for Delubach and for those of us who also call ourselves Christian, he's ruined but not hopeless. <laughs> well, it's, o- it's only ruined if you accept the principle and the premise of the materialists. Yes. No, he's ruined. Delubach is saying spiritually, because of the fall, we are in a state of ruin. And the materialist uh, methods of getting us out of this are not going to work because oh, you're right. You're we right. need a spiritual solution, right? Yeah. The older I get, the more that's obvious. All my parts are out of warranty by now. <laughs> <laughs> Mine are on the way, Father. Mine are on the way. Um. So I get middle of four forty-eight. If that, if that's, if that's next, I'll, I'll, I'll proceed. All right. Well, the quote here from the middle of 448, and so in another context and on a larger scale, that situation justly condemned by Marx lives on in which, quote, man is a mere machine for producing, end quote. The exaltation of the worker is transformed without any words being changed into the organization of a new slavery. So this idea of of the economy in in the case of uh, what we might a certain type of capitalism uh, or the um, machinery of of the socialist state, because that's the whole point in the end, there's not a lot of difference, both reduced uh, man to homo economicus, all right, that we are merely cogs in an economic machine and we are disposable. Uh, The important thing is the machine, not, not the individual cogs. So that so both a, a, a certain type of capitalism and, 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 and Marxism and socialism dehumanizes man because it puts man merely as a piece in a mechanism. Right. And that very expression, homo economicus, reflects a reductionism because oikos in Greek means your home, namos means the law, and true economy is the law, the principles by which you establish your homeland, your home, your place of dwelling. But it's been reduced to profit and loss, labor, you know, and capital. And that in itself is a etiolation, I guess you'd call it, you know, a diminishment of what really kind of means. And by the way, theologically, you know, we talk about the, the theological trinity and the economical trinity. What's an economical trinity? <laughs> well, the theological trinity is God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Economical trinity is Father as creator. Son as Redeemer, Spirit as Sanctifier, as they enter into the our home. They create the home, they're in the home. That's the true economy. Oh, Amen. Right. Oh, I, I love some... this. 
uh, quotation from De Chardin that de Lubac ends this paragraph with on 448 about a super society without heart or face. Yeah, I had that highlighted as well, Vivian. Yeah, the whole idea that it's now become, because it's now a machine, right, that we've, we've lost the actual heart of humanity, we've lost the face of humanity, we're left nothing but, with nothing but a mechanism. And that, that's the tragedy of, of this reductionist understanding of, of humanity, either as part of the social machine, in the case of August Comte and Marx, or in the case of the market and the necess necessity for profit, in the case of, uh, of, of capitalism. That recalls to me the book by C.S. Lewis, which he considered his best and his favorite, called Till We Have Faces. And the title refers to the Queen Oriwal saying, why don't you speak to me face to face? Why, God, don't you reveal me, me face to face? And it ends by saying, well, until we have faces, you can't do that. So if we're a faceless society, we're not going to be able to speak to God face to face. Oh, man. Yeah, by the way, absolutely. I mean... For those watching and listening, uh, put, if you haven't read that book, put that on your list of books to read. It's uh, Anything by C.S. Lewis is always illuminating, well-written well and, and inspiring. But this particular book, I think, is, uh, is, is very moving. And the irony is, both at the time of its publication and even today, uh, it's the book of his which was least popular, even though in, I agree with his own estimation of it as his best. To me, it's one of the classics of 20th century literature, and yet it's sadly neglected. And it's an example of how true novelty is rooted in tradition, because the subtitle is A Myth Retold. It's the ancient myth of Eros and Psyche, which Lewis had read, but it felt uncomfortable with. It, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was pagan, fine, but it wasn't quite right. And so he retells it as a Christian, it's not explicitly Christian, but it, it's a Christian mind taking into itself the, the treasures of the past, the pagan past, and illuminating them from within. It's very beautiful. Amen. I've got something on uh, 449 in the middle. Anybody before that? Nope. New paragraph there? Okay. Uh, thus they, who are they? I forget. Could believe at a time when it was still only a question of emancipation and spirit, that to reduce everything to imminence would give everything to man. That is to say, there's no transcendence. Let's reduce things to the worldly. This was, on the contrary, to rob him of everything, for it was to reduce everything to time, to a time without eternal foundation. And that kind of echoes what you were saying earlier on, Vivian, that uh, if we're just time, you know, time eats itself up. You know, it's a serpent eating its own tail. Uh, if there's no eternal foundation, then time is just dissolution, dispersion, entropy, falling apart, you know, getting old, corruption, dying, and so on. But if time is held in the hand of God who created it, why time then becomes a means by which we earn an eternal salvation. Right. Yeah. What's interesting also on this page is, as you remember, he wrote this, in this particular section, he wrote after the Second World War. And so what Europe had just been through with World War I, communism, Nazism, World War II, and de Lubach refers to this whole history as an appetizer on the bottom of 449. An appetizer was recently offered us. 
whose cruel memory will remain with us for a long time. And every day we discover that whether infected directly or by the same process stemming from the same cause, the evil is far from being eradicated. It is spreading. It is establishing itself. Here, how many people after the triumph of the victory of the allies of World War II were talking like this? Yeah, in fact, the problem was there was a blind and blind optimism that emerged uh, after World War II, the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and so it's very, this, this is what's absolutely necessary. Not, on the contrary, the same evils which created World War I, World War II, fascism, Nazism, Marxism, communism, are taking root and spreading. That's uh, right. And we're just going to get some sort of manifestation of the same sort of cruelty and evil. Uh, making itself manifest in consequence. Right. To, to refer to what he just lived through as an appetizer, okay? I don't, I don't know there were very many men in his time talking like this. They all saw that they'd won, that they defeated these forces of evil. And then he says, um, you know, this, this is, this is, we are in danger of provoking a wave of pessimism because all of this optimism, the post-war optimism and prosperity and, you know, everything's going to get better now. And there was more faith in science in a way than ever before after the war, you know, and he's saying that we are in danger of provoking a wave of pessimism whose devastating effect would be difficult to calculate. You know, yes, they, this is not going to end the way people hope it will. Not man's material accomplishments. They are not going to solve the fundamental problem of what it means to be human. You know, the, the word profit comes from pro fami, which means really pro on behalf of, to speak on behalf of, but prophet speaks on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, most of the prophets, most of the time, are not talking about the future. They're talking about the present and how we've fallen away from the past. But uh, there's another kind of prophet. Uh, sometimes they do foretell the future. But there can be a, a kind of a secular prophet who sees in what's happening now what the conscience will be in the middle and long term. And in that sense, the Lubach is a prophet who is also providential. Providence means pro videre, uh, to look into the future, to, to see towards the future. And that's what the Lubach is doing here. Like you said, Vivian, the end of World War II, the great victory, we finally won this thing, we've defeated uh, Nazism, communism is still there, but we're having this bright future ahead of us, which we did in many ways. I mean, there was a tremendous uh, uh, revival, economic and material revival in, in, in Japan and in Europe and even the United States. But he saw that this was going to be, you know, it was going to lead to pessimism if we based our optimism on merely victory in this war. That's right. And merely material prosperity. Yes. You know? And he saw that the West was already hollowed out and that even though it won, the Allies won, and like you said, unleashed all this prosperity, that it was not going to deliver what people thought it was going to deliver. And he immediately jumps to the example of Rome, that when the Romans perceived that the foundation of their society was only a myth, their courage immediately gave way. 
So he this he is he is sounding a warning here to us that if you put your faith in the wrong things, if you put your faith in your prosperity, in your military prowess, if that's what your faith is in, you are in for a disappointment. Yeah. And the other thing is, of course, about the victory at uh, the end of uh, World War Two is it was a bit of a, how should we say this, uh, there was a sting in the tail because uh, what the, the other aspect of it is that Soviet the uh, Soviet Union became the Soviet Empire, and when the whole of Eastern Europe became communist, and then we had the Cold War emerging and the, 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 the nuclear arms race emerging. So on the one hand, you're completely right, uh, Vivian, that the, the West was talking about the solution is in material prosperity, but then we had the other half that basically still trying to bring this Marxist dream into being. You know, and, and what you said earlier, right at the beginning, Vivian, about there's nothing in this um, materialistic concept of the future ultimately but despair and i like the way he ends uh, uh part six here with quoting from a communist from a from a, a russian communist on his deathbed in moscow uh on new year's eve 1940 so just uh, as the world war ii's uh starting um so at the end of that session page 451 nothing thus is more dangerous than a poorly founded optimism in other words an optimism founded on a, on a bad philosophy only despair can come from it and then this is the quote from this communist on his deathbed. Lie. The human collective is as fragile as I on the scale of eternity. 70 years or 700 years, it is the same. The human collective would itself disappear as well. Everything is a mirage. So he sort of has this idea of no abiding city, which of course can be good if you believe in eternity, but if you believe in God, if you don't believe in God, Everything ultimately is a mirage. Everything is an illusion. You can't believe in the human collective. You can't believe in society. You can't believe in socialism. You can't believe in a, in a future for humanity because everything ultimately is a lie. I wrote down, I underlined that too, said good summary. And since that is a good summary, section six, and we've kind of come to the end of our temporal limit here, let us conclude here and begin next session with uh, section seven. All right? Yes. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.